It is good to be back again with you guys this morning. We are a long way into this series we started back in the fall called uh, The Big Story. And uh, we are doing exactly that, checking out the big story of Scripture. Genesis to Revelation, all the major themes and stories that are tying the one big story of Scripture all together. Uh, this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. I told you last week uh, that we're going to be transitioning from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's exactly what we're going to be doing. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. It's going to feel a little bit like Christmas this morning, the announcement of Christ's arrival uh, to Mary. And so I hope you're good with that. Uh, while you're turning there, i got a question I want to kick off with. How many of you in here are good with silence? Like Maybe you're an introvert, but like <laughs> we got a lot here. Okay. Okay, you like, your, you like your moments of silence. Maybe you're a new mom or something, or you've got little ones running around the house, and you're kind of going, I'm craving a little bit of silence. Anybody in here kind of, I, I, I hate silence. Like, I loathe it. I'm kind of more the extrovert. I, that, that's kind of my camp, too. we got a couple. Okay. Uh, yeah, like, if I'm going to go study or something, a lot of times I like to go, go, to, go to a coffee shop. I want hustle and bustle going on around there and stuff, and it just kind of helps. But I've noticed that silence is a pretty funny thing, right? Like, sometimes silence is is exactly what you need. Maybe it's in moderation. Maybe it's just certain times of the day or certain times of your life. But sometimes silence is exactly what you need. But sometimes it's like it's the last thing that you want, right? I remember I was thinking back just just this past week, and I can't remember if I've shared this with you before or not, but I was thinking back to the very first time I had to define the relationship conversation with Kat back in the college days. You guys remember these DTR conversations? Easily like the most painful relationship, like every man dreads them as you get into a relationship. You're like, okay, we're going to have to define this thing a little bit more clearly, and I'm going to have to go out on a limb and face rejection and all these different kinds of things. And I was remembering this back the other day, but uh, like back when it happened, it was probably my my junior year in college, and um, like I was really confident in my head going into this whole thing, right? Like I practiced, like in my head, I was the man, I was full of confidence, I was going to go in there and be like, hey, you know it, I know it, let's do this. And it's going to go perfect, and she's going to be like, yes, well, I thought you never asked it. It's going to be like perfect conversation. And it's just not exactly how it played out. I'll never forget the night, but we were coming back from, I forgot what we were doing. We were, we were doing something out of the library, and we come back in the car, and uh, we know that the conversation has to happen, right? And, and, and so we get in the car, and we know that it's probably going to be taking place that night, and we get in there, and, uh, and I turn off the radio, and I try to make the transition into the conversation, and all of a sudden, I freeze up. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, my heart's beating like a thousand miles per hour, and, and my, my hands are all sweaty and nasty and everything, and, like, and I totally freeze in the whole conversation. And she's just sitting there in silence, and I'm sitting there in silence going, okay, how in the world do I jump into this whole thing? And then finally, like, the only thing I could think to say is, like, I, so I, I like you. That's all. I'm not kidding you. Three words, I like you. And then not only that, like I said, I like you. When I said the word like, my voice cracked. And I sounded like an like a 11-year-old boy, right? It's like my voice cracked, and I was like, and then I'm totally in my head, right? I was like, you've got to be kidding me. That's the best that I came out. I'm a speech communication major. I want to be a preacher one day. Like, I should be a little bit better at communicating things. And I'm totally in my head. I'm like, that was the worst thing in the world. And then, like, Kat didn't help the situation either. She was just, I think she was just, like, so taken off by everything. She's like, okay. And I'm not kidding you, she like just let it go in silence and stuff. And we rode for probably 12 minutes across town in College Station in total and complete silence. And I'm just sitting there my whole time playing this whole thing in my head, just going, that was the worst intro I've ever given in my entire life into this whole thing. How in the world has happened? 12 minutes of the most painstaking, excruciating silence in the world. Like, right? like sometimes like silence is exactly what you're looking for, you need, it's rejuvenating, and it's exactly what you need in the season. And sometimes like the silence is the last thing that you want in your life. And it's not just the silly things kind of like that. It's, it's, it's serious things. It's a few years back when dad was going into the hospital and he had a triple bypass surgery, double valve replacement. 
and we're in the waiting room that day, and, and it's supposed to be a five-hour surgery, and we're sitting there in the waiting room, and five hours quickly turns into six, and six quickly turns into seven, and we're there with my family, we're praying, and we're saying, okay, Lord, what, what's going on here? And, and we were trying to grab the nurses, hey, can somebody give us an update? It's taking a lot longer than expected, and seven turns into eight, and eight turns into nine hours, and we're starting to panic in the, in the room, and we're going, okay, we really need some clarity. We really need some direction about what's taking place here. And we just sat in that, we just sat in that waiting room in just excruciating silence during that time, going, God, where in the world are you? What's, what's happening right now? And some of you guys are exactly there. Like, how do you keep holding on to faith? Like, how do you keep holding on when you need to hear from the Lord, when you need to hear some sort of word from him? You need some sort of direction, but it feels like the only thing that you keep getting back is silence. And some of us are there. Like, like how do you keep holding on? Maybe it's you're in the middle of a job transition or something like that, and, and it's been weeks, and, and those weeks have maybe turned into months, and you're sitting there going, okay, I have no idea what this next season of life is looking like, and I have no idea how provision is going to be made. I have no idea what's ahead of us. And maybe it's a prodigal child that you've been praying for for a really, really long time to come home, and those weeks have turned into months, and months have turned into years, and you're sitting there going, okay, God, where in the world are you? And I'm crying out for some sort of direction, some sort of deliverance here, and the only thing that you your back is total and complete silence. How do you keep holding on to the faith when it feels like all you're getting back is silence? I think that's what we're going to get a little bit of help with this morning in Luke chapter 1 in Mary's story. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, I do want to catch us back up again, kind of where we are in the big story. We're making a major transition in this story. We're moving from the Old Testament to uh, the New Testament. The mission and the message of Scripture is still the exact same thing. We are seeing God's redemptive purposes coming to the ends of the earth through uh, his people, the nation of Israel. That's what's, being, that's what's playing out here in the big story. It's the exact same God, brand new covenant that's about to come into play here a little bit later on um, at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, up to this point, there are two main covenants that are taking place, the Abrahamic, unconditional, unilateral promises given from God to Abraham. Uh, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. I'm promising you land, people, and blessing. Uh, that absolutely takes place. That's the na- nation of Israel, the people of Israel. The Mosaic Covenant is going to come in, and it's going to mediate the relationship that God has with his covenant people, the Israelites. Uh, he's going to say in Exodus 19, again, if you obey me fully, keep my covenant, uh, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was the idea. Priests are mediators between God and man, and that's what the nation of Israel was supposed to be, this kingdom of priests that mediate the blessing of God and take it to the ends of the earth, all for the glory of God. It's not exactly how it played out. That's the Mosaic covenant that is going to be fulfilled in Christ a little bit later on, and so that's what's going to be taking place. Jeremiah is going to even be saying the same thing. He's going to be saying, we need a new and better covenant, and it's going to all be pointing to this day when Jesus comes on the scene and brings in this brand new covenant. As we know from the Old Testament, they were very unfaithful, all these ways and these cycles of obedience. It's going to lead to the 700s when God finally gives them over to discipline uh, in order to learn their lesson and to not follow false idols and things of that nature. There's going to be two major captivities that take place. The Assyrians are going to take the northern kingdom of Israel uh, in 722, and then in 605 BC, the Babylonians are going to follow that up. They're going to take captive the southern kingdom of Judah uh, and the Benjamites that that are right there. Uh, Jeremiah's prophesied they're going to be in exile 70 years, right? And so the end of the 70 years comes, into, comes about around 537. Uh, the Persians and the Medes and the Persians are going to take over for the Babylonians at that time. 
and uh, King Cyrus is going to come into power, and God is going to use King Cyrus to make a decree which is going to allow the Israelites to finally return home. And that's what we talked about when we were looking at the Ezra passage a couple weeks ago. So they're going to finally come home. And those 70 years after these years in exile are going to be largely times of revival. They're going to be coming home. Uh, They're going to be uh, firmly committed to reestablishing right worship practices in the nation of Israel. There's going to be rebuilding of the temple. Uh, They're going to be starting all these different things. And things are going to be going really, really well initially. Uh, Nehemiah is going to come along in about 445 with another wave of people returning home. They're going to be rebuilding the walls. And so for those first 70 years after exile, things are going to go pretty well. Malachi is going to come on the scene in about 430. And by the time Malachi comes in, about 100 years after they've returned home from exile, uh, a brand new generation is in place. And you're going to be seeing this empty religiosity that takes place. All the fervor of revival has quickly dissipated. Uh, because the Israelites have been really, really good at delivering the faith and not so great at entrusting it to the next generation. We talked about this last week, right? Major difference between delivering the faith and entrusting it to the next generation. Delivery is like a newspaper. You're tossing it out, and you do not care if they actually pick up their newspaper, if they read it, or even understand the content of that newspaper. Entrusting it is taking it. It's kind of like placing a ring on your girlfriend's hand and proposing marriage. You're going to make sure that that ring goes on that finger and that she knows exactly what's taking place at that point in time. right major difference and so when this next generation comes on the scene empty religiosity and back to malachi there's going to be all this rebuke of the people of people of israel one more time when malachi passes away you're going to have about 400 years of silence uh, between the old the end of the old testament and the beginning of the new testament can you just think about that for a second 400 years of total and complete silence from god we're talking no prophets coming to the people of israel There's no divine intervention. There's no miraculous workings of God at this point in time. Just total and complete silence from the end of Malachi to the beginning of the New Testament. I mean, that, one of the most painful things in the world, I mean, you've got, if, I'm imagining that if you're an Israelite at this time, you're sitting there going, okay, Lord, where in the world are you at this time, right? Like, did you just forget about us now? Or have you gotten so fed up with us because we've been stubborn on our rebellion that you've finally just given up and walked away? Lord, what, like, where are you? I mean, clearly, 400 years, like, there's a lot that's going on. God, um, I thought you were faithful to your promises. You made all these promises in the past. God, where are you now? Just 400 years of silence. So as we get to Luke chapter 1, like, this is going to be the first time in a really, really long time that anyone has even heard from the Lord. And he's going to go about it, doing it through two miraculous pregnancies. The first two, Elizabeth and Zechariah, who's going to be John the Baptist's parents there. And then the second one to a virgin named Mary here in verse 26. And that's where I want to pick up here this morning. Verse 26 says this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which is Mary's cousin, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this may be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, because you found favor with God. In other words, it's not exactly the the cute, chubby baby angel that you want to cuddle with. It's a terrifying encounter. And so this angel is coming and saying, don't be afraid of me, Mary. Uh, You are actually favored by God. Verse 31, you will conceive and you're going to give birth to a son and you're going to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. There's a number of different promises that are taking place here, right? What I love about these promises is that long before they ever come to fruition, like every single one of them is going to be fulfilled. 
Like what, what I love about these promises is that everything that the angel is promising to Mary in this conversation, every single one of them is going to come to pass. Even though she is a virgin, she does still get pregnant. And she does give birth to a son, not a little girl. She names him Jesus, not Mike or Mo or Larry or anything else like that. Uh, he also comes from the line of David, which is exactly what was promised to King David nearly a thousand years earlier. The Messiah is going to come through the line of King David. Matthew's going to make a point in his genealogy at the beginning of his gospel that, that Jesus is going to come through the line of David. He's going to follow that promise all the way back through Abraham, all the way back to the very beginning. And Luke is going to do the same thing in chapter 3, through David, through Abraham, all the way back to Adam in fulfillment of these promises. Uh, he's absolutely considered great, right? Like Time Magazine even said that Jesus was one of the greatest men to ever live. Uh, that was very kind of them, right? Uh, one of the greatest men of, who, to ever live. And you don't even need to be a believer that, to recognize that Jesus was a great man, right? Um, and then people everywhere have also recognized that he is the, the son of God. How many of you have ever heard that title and that designation associated with Jesus' name? Jesus is the son of God. Like that's exactly what he's predicting is going to happen long before it ever took place. He's predicting that people everywhere, not just in America, but people all around the world are going to look upon Jesus and they're going to recognize that he is the son of God. And it's exactly what takes place. In other words, he is a promise-keeping God is exactly what we're seeing here in these, in these uh, next couple verses. Verse 33 is going to get a little bit more difficult to understand. Uh, he's going to say, and he's going to reign over Jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom is going to have no end. Now, if anything's going to create a little bit of doubt in Mary, this is going to be the promise that's going to do it. Because Israel had not been a united or an independent kingdom, for that matter, for about 500 years. Like, and even when they were, like, it was this massive dysfunction. It was all kinds of brokenness. And then on top of that, history's never known any kingdom that's lasted for forever. There's, it's never known any, any kingdom that's lasted forever and that has no end. I mean, the Assyrians come to power, and everybody's thinking, okay, these are the big bad guys right here. Their kingdom's going to last forever, but then come the Babylonians. And the Babylonians come, they rise to power, and they're all thinking, okay, these mighty big bad Babylonians, they're going to be in power forever, but then come the Medes and the Persians. And then everybody's thinking, okay, they're going to stay in power forever, but then come the Greeks. And then people are looking at Alexander the Great saying, that guy's going to be conquering everything for as long as he lives, but then come the Romans. And here comes this angel who's speaking to this Jewish virgin teenage girl and saying that even though every other empire throughout history has always failed, her son's empire is going to last forever and it's going to sound completely impossible. And so this next verse, she's going to ask the angel this question that we'd all probably at least be thinking, right? She's going to ask this, the very obvious question, verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? It's a pretty legit question, right? Now here's the question, why... Doesn't Mary get reprimanded for this question, kind of like Zechariah did in the previous passage? If you remember this story, like the angel comes and speaks to Zechariah, which is John the Baptist's father, and, and lets him know, hey, there's going to be this miraculous pregnancy. I know you guys are really, really old. I know that you're barren, uh, but I'm going to give you a son. And Zechariah looks at the angel and he says, okay, well, how can I be sure that this is going to take place? Here's what he says. He says, how can I be sure of this since I'm an old man and my wife is well along in the years? What's the difference between the way that Zechariah responds and the way that Mary responds? I mean, it's a matter of, uh, it, it's a, it's a matter of one is coming from a place of doubt and one is coming from a place of faith. 
right? I mean, Zechariah is going to be coming from a place of doubt that's kind of saying, yeah, right, how can I be sure that this is actually going to be taking place? Like, how can I be sure since, uh, since I'm actually a virgin? That's a place of doubt. A place of faith is going to be coming from a place of wonder, which is expecting something to take place. And she's going to be sitting there going, wow, how in the world is this going to take place? This is incredible. Like one's coming from a place of faith and one is coming from a place of doubt. And so Zechariah is going to show us that in these seasons of silence, there's a way to question God, which comes from a place of doubt. And Mary's going to show us that in these seasons of silence, there's a way to question God, which still maintains a place of faith. Right? Zechariah is going to be rebuked and Mary is going to be given an explanation. And so that's what the angel gets into here in verse 35. He's going to say, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you. And the power of the Most High God will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. In other words, he's not going to be just another baby. He's not going to be like any other child. He's not going to be like anything else you've ever known. He's going to be conceived of the Holy Spirit. Uh, He's going to be fully divine. He's going to be fully man. This is going to be like any other child that you know. And I know this seems really, really improbable. So here's what he says in verse 36. Look, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For there's nothing that's impossible for God. In other words, Mary, I know this entire thing sounds really, really, really improbable. I know there's not a whole lot of virgins that are getting pregnant here. Like, I know that a lot of these promises seem really, really far-fetched, but here's what you've got to understand. There's absolutely nothing that's impossible for God. Like, I've done this thing before. Miraculous pregnancies are kind of my thing. You're like, you remember Hannah? Uh, Or you remember Sarah? Or you remember Rebecca or Hannah, the mother of, of Samuel? Even Elizabeth right here, like, she's really, really old in age. She was barren, but now she's in her sixth month. I parted the Red Sea, right? This is, this is kind of my thing. There's nothing that's impossible for me. I've made it rain bread and meat from the heavens when, you're, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. I've delivered you from your enemies time and time again. The blind are able to see. The lame are able to walk. And so, yes, this virgin pregnancy, it seems really, really improbable for man. But here's what you've got to understand. There's absolutely nothing that's impossible for God. Yeah, it seems pretty improbable that there's going to be a kingdom that has no end. But there is nothing that's impossible for God. And church, the reason I want to go off on that is because there is a lot that seems improbable, but there is nothing that is impossible for God. Like not your marriage or your relationships or your job status or your prodigal child or your health. Nothing. Like there's nothing that's impossible for God. And when we combine our confidence in the power of God along with our knowledge of the promises of God, there's no amount of silence that will ever be able to stifle your faith. But here's the thing. They've always got to go hand in hand, right? It's always both and. It's always the promises of God along with the power of God. You can never have one without the other. Like it's not enough to know the power of God that there's nothing that's impossible for him if you don't also know his promises. Because that's when disillusionment comes in. God, I know that you can do this, that, and the other, but you didn't, so where in the world are you? God, I know that you can eliminate pain and evil, but you didn't in this particular scenario, so where in the world are you? Why have you gone silent on me? God, I know that you can do fill in the blank, whatever that thing is that you may be dealing with, but you haven't. So where in the world are you, God? What, did you, what are you doing here, church? Like, it's just not what he's promised always. Like, at the exact same time, it's not enough to know the promises of God if you don't believe that he actually has the power to keep them. Otherwise, you're Zechariah. I'm going to have a miraculous, I'm going to have a child at my age. Like, I'm going to have a child, like, even though we're barren. Like, that's the promises of God. He doubts the power. How in the world are you going to do that, God? You can't do that. Yeah, right. Like, it's the exact same thing. that You've always got to have both. The power of God along with the promises of God. Church, Mary is about to enter into the season of life when no one is going to believe the things that are taking place in her life. 
And this is going to be one of the most lonely and silent seasons that you or I could ever imagine. I mean, who's going to believe that she's conceived of the Holy Spirit? How do you explain that? She's not married yet. How do you explain that to Joseph? How do you explain that to your family and your friends? Like, this is an honor-shame culture, and it's just not going to work out well for her. Like, her glory and her ease is going to come 33, 35 years later. But these next 33 years of her life are going to be incredibly painful, and there's going to be all kinds of silence. I mean, just after Jesus is born, they're going to have to flee the country because Herod wants her son dead. I mean, years later, she's going to have to sit at the foot of the cross watching her son suffer, bleed, and die naked and ashamed upon a cross. But she's still able to hold on because she is firmly rooted in the power and in the promises of God. Specifically, there's two promises here that I want to keep going after. And you're going to see them both in verse 28. They're not going to be new ones. They're going to be promises that have been reiterated throughout the Old Testament. Verse 28 is going to say this. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this may be. But the angel said to her again, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. So two different times the angel is going to assure her that she's actually favored by God and that God is actually for her in the middle of this season. Like, I'm for you, Mary. Don't forget this. You're favored by God, and I'm for you. And granted, like, Mary's favor from God is going to look a little bit different than our favor from God does, right? She's carrying the Son of God. That's kind of a unique situation that she's in, right? Uh, But Paul's going to be saying the exact same thing. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he's going to use the same words to say this. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I came and I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor and now is the day of salvation. So what exactly are we talking about when we say that God's favor is upon you or that God is actually for you? Like, are we talking about like front row parking on Christmas Eve or... Or like 635 just magically parts and you never run into traffic or something like that? I mean, because like Mary's favored by God, but she's still an unwed pregnant teenager that's got a lot of explaining to do. Like Mary's favored by God, but she's still going to be living the rest of her life in poverty. Like Mary's favored by God and she's still going to watch her son suffer, bleed, and die. In other words, like favor clearly does not mean the absence of difficulty, right? But it also doesn't mean that it's life following Jesus is only difficult. Uh, look at what Paul says again here in this passage. He says, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I actually helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. And now is the day of salvation. In other words, because of God's favor, when we were in need of salvation, not only did he listen, but he also came down in order to help. So yeah, it doesn't mean the absence of pain or the absence of difficulty, but it also doesn't mean that following him is only going to be difficult and only persecution. And the reason we need to understand this is because there's a contingent in our tradition um, that wants to believe that following Jesus is only about pain and difficulty, right? And and yes, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to die to yourself daily, take up your cross in order to follow me. Paul's going to say the same thing. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, then you will be persecuted. But in the exact same breath, he's also going to say things like this in Romans chapter 8, 28. For God works all things together for good to those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. What then shall we say? Verse 31. In response to these different things, the predetermined work of God in people's life. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Church, that is who God is. It's not all pain and difficulty. Verse 28, it says that he's given you purpose. In verse 29, it says that he is conforming us more and more into the image of his son. It's what he's doing. He is refining your character, and he's making you more and more into the image of his son as you are surrendered to his Holy Spirit. John chapter 1 is going to say that he's given us the right to be called children of God. And then in Matthew chapter 7, it's going to say that he is a good and loving father who loves to give good gifts to the children that he loves. Church of Ephesians chapter 1 is going to say that he's blessed us with every single spiritual blessing in the world. 1 Corinthians 6 is going to say that our bodies are now a temple of the Holy Spirit, that he's actually chosen to take up residence inside of every single man, woman, and child who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 14 is going to say that Jesus went ahead of us in order to prepare a place for us in the future. Like Psalm 81 is going to say this, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide because I want to fill it. Open your mouth wide. I want to fill it with blessing. Like Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things are going to be added unto you. Church, that's who he is. He is a God who loves to provide. He loves to provide. And I could go on and on and on, but that is the favor of God. And exactly what it means when, when we say that you've got to believe that God is for you, and God's favor is with you. Church, his silence is not anger or revenge, Right? I, I, like in these times of silence, you've got to understand that's like his silence is not anger or revenge because his wrath against your sin has been fully satisfied by the substitutionary life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf. It's all been satisfied. It's all been taken care of. That's how this whole thing went down. You weren't perfect. You were lost and dead in your sins. So God in his infinite love sent Jesus to come and to be perfect for us. We couldn't get it all right. So Jesus came down and he, made, he did it all right for us. Like our sins separate us from God now and for all of eternity, and it deserves, it's earned us death. And so Jesus willingly went to the cross and he suffered, bled, and died as a substitute for us. We could do nothing about our state, we could not uh, resurrect ourselves, we have no capacity to conquer sin and death. And so Jesus came and he conquered sin and death for us. And, and, which is exactly why Paul is going to be able to say there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. Church, that is the favor of God. Silence is not his anger or his wrath. Uh, he is actually for you because all those things have been satisfied perfectly in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And knowing that is everything when it comes to continuing to hold on and continuing to come to him in these seasons of silence. I'll never forget um, a number of years ago when the first time when I met Kat's dad. I don't know if you, like, going through this, like, meeting your girlfriend's father for the first time is a terrifying thing, right? They typically have a shotgun on the, on the porch, and they want to scare you to death, and Kat's dad was no different. Uh, I remember he wanted to meet me and get to know this guy who was dating his daughter and showed up to his house one day, and I was terrified to meet him. I had no idea if he'd like me or favor me if, we'd get to, if uh, he'd be for this whole thing or not, and I'll never forget, if you knew Ron, he was around here for a little while, and he just, he comes to the door that day, I ring the doorbell, and he answers the door, he opens up, and he just turns around, and he says, follow me, like, no greeting, no, like, hug, welcome, I'm glad to see you, or anything, like, he just opens up the door, and he just turns around, and walks out the back, and he says, follow me, and, like, her brother's on the stairs, and he's dying laughing, and, like, Kat's mom is around the corner, and she's like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, and, and she's like, I'm, I'm glad to meet you, and she's the peacemaker and stuff, and he's just, like, storming out the back door, and I was like, oh, man, this, we're in for it, and we go out to that back patio, and we sit down and he just says, tell me about yourself. <laughs> and I was like, okay, where do I begin? 
It started with my testimony. I just started sharing about what, what God had done in my life and desires to go into ministry and all these different things. And all of a sudden, he just starts like, he starts weeping. The year before, two years before, something like that, God had just recently got a hold of his life, and he just opens up and starts talking about what, what God had been doing in his life and this hard exterior of a shell. I'm not kidding, just this soft interior. He's weeping. He's telling his testimony, and uh, I'm listening, and we, we're just sharing these stories back and forth, and we get up and we hug, and, and it's, just, it's this awesome thing out there. Church, I, like, it's everything to know that God is for you, Right? Like, I had his favorite just completely changed the entire dynamic. I was no longer afraid of him. I was no longer uh, afraid of what he was thinking. I had no idea what he was thinking about our relationship behind the scenes, knowing that he was for us, did everything to bridge the gap in that relationship. I wanted to be around him, and I wanted to be there. Church, knowing that God is for you is everything in these seasons, seasons of silence. It's not anger, and it's not revenge, because it's all been satisfied through the substitutionary life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf. It's not the only promise that the angel gives Mary here, but here's what he says next. And this is a very, very common one that we've heard. Verse 28, greetings, favored one, because the Lord is with you. We heard this one before, right? Like this is the constant repeated promise throughout the Old Testament and even into the New. I mean, do you think that God wants us to know that like he's with us, even in the silence that he's actually with you? Like Exodus chapter 3, like Moses is talking with God through the famous story of the burning bush, and God gives him these marching orders. I want you to go to Pharaoh and demand that he lets my people go. And, of course, Moses is terrified by this mission assignment. And, and, and what does God say? He says, fear not because I'm going to be with you. Moses, here's the thing. Like, fear not because I'm actually going to be with you the entire time. It's the exact same thing in Joshua chapter 1-5. Like, there's a, a transition in leadership in Israel's history. Joshua is now the man in charge. He's insecure about it. And God says, as I was with Moses, so I'm going to be with you. I will, leave, uh, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's the same thing in chapter 1, verse 9. Be strong and courageous, Joshua. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will always be with you wherever you go. Judges 6-16. The Lord says to give and I will be with you, and you'll defeat the Midianites. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our strength. The Lord our ho- of hosts is actually with us, and it continues in the new covenant. Uh, just after his resurrection, Jesus is going to say to his disciples, just after he gives them the great commission, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, remember, I will be with you always until the very end of the age. Church, he is never left. He's never left. Do you think that he wants you to get that, like, his presence is still there with you? Like, we're going to get to the New Testament, and Paul's going to say that like, the Holy Spirit's taken up residence inside of your body if you've come to the Lord Jesus Christ in genuine faith. Like, he's never, ever left. Even in the 400 years of silence from the time of Malachi to the New Testament, God, uh, he never, ever left. And history's going to prove that, like, even though he was silent, God was never still during that time. Like, even in the silence, like, he was never still. He was always working and redeeming and setting the stage for Jesus to come on the scene. Can I just show you some of these things? I love what he was doing in, these, in this period of, of silence. I think it's incredibly powerful because if we can see what God is doing behind the scenes in these times of silence, I think that our, our faith is going to explode in this. But there's, a, there's three main things that take place in the season of silence between the time of Malachi and the time of the New Testament. In about 336 B.C., the Greeks are going to come into power under the leadership of Alexander the Great. So when the Old Testament closes, there's going to be two more shifts in power that take place. And the first one's going to be there with the Greeks under the leadership of, uh, of Alexander the Great. First it was the Syrians, then it was Babylonians, then it was the Persians. Alexander's going to come on the scene. The first thing he does is he's going to defeat the big, bad, mighty Persians. 
And uh, that's going to begin this string of conquests like nothing the world is ever going to, has ever seen before and ever will again. Thirteen years his conquests are going to take place. He's going to pass away around the age of 33, probably of alcoholism. And uh, I love this quote of his. He says, I'm so depressed at the end of his life. He says, I'm so depressed because there's no more worlds to conquer. Right? That's Alexander the Great. Hashtag dictator problems, right? Like, there's no more worlds to conquer. And so that's going to be Alexander the Great. Well, before he dies, uh, he goes on this quest in order to Hellenize the world, which essentially means that he wants to make the entire world Greek, essentially. He wants to push Greek culture everywhere he does. So he makes this edict, and uh, he issues this decree that the entire world should speak a common language, Koine Greek. And the reason that's important is because you and I are not inclined to typically have much of a relationship with people that do not speak the same language as us, do we? Right? I mean, you think about this. Like you're, 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 the place that you spend the most of your, amount of your time is not in a community of people that do not speak the same language as you. Like if you're a missionary and you're going overseas to a foreign country, uh, the very first thing you're going to do is language school because if you don't speak the language, then you're not going to be any good at the mission, right? And so that's the very first thing to do. Like uh, there's been one common leader at this time uh, in a world that has been previously divided by language and various rulers. It is now ruled by one common leader of this large section of land here, and they're all learning the exact same language. So that's number one. Years later, in 146 B.C., the Romans are going to come in. They're going to defeat the Greeks at the Battle of Corinth. And they're going to do two major things of note. The first thing is they're going to bring in an intricate system of roads and highways that's going to allow travel throughout the, throughout the known world at that time uh, like nothing before. Think about the, how the Internet has connected people today, right? I mean, we have access to people all around the world. That's kind of the original design here. For the very first time, the Romans are going to come in and make travel from one part of the world to other parts of the world very, very easy. The second thing that they're going to do is decree Pax Romana. Pax Romana is Latin for uh, Roman military peace. And what that's meaning is that there's no more worlds to be conquered. Essentially, we've now entered in this time where there is complete peace throughout the land, right? And so there is this 200-year period from about 27 B.C. for the next 200 years. So think about that. What's taking place from 27 B.C. for those next 200 years? Church, can we just think about this for the time? Like by the time that we get to the Gospels and Jesus finally comes on the scene, look at everything that's already in place for the mission of God to flourish. There's a common language in Koine Greek, which is going to be the language that the New Testament is written in. There's going to be peace throughout the known world. And now there's going to be an incredible transportation system that's going to allow the Gospel to advance throughout the ends of the world. Church, he may be silent, but I promise you he's never still. Right? He may be silent, but I promise you he's never still. Don't ever confuse the silence of God with his absence when all that it is is intermission. You may be out getting a Coke and getting a refill on your popcorn, but I promise you, like, he is behind the scenes. He is behind that curtain setting the stage for Act 2 to begin, and someone needs to hear that this morning. Like, you may be in this season of silence. You may be in the middle of this transition. You may be in the middle of this, this season of pain and difficulty, and you're going, Lord, I need to hear from you. Like, I need to know, are you here? What are you doing in the middle of this thing? Are you trustworthy, right? Like, I'm living in this world of gray, but I promise you, church, like, he sees the entire thing. Church, Moses was 80 years old before he engaged the mission that God had originally called him to, right? He was 80 years old, and God's mission was, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to bring my people out of the bondage of slavery. The first 40 years of Moses' life was spent living in Pharaoh's household. The next 40 years of his life was spent in a field tending the sheep because God would use him to be a shepherd to his own people. It took 80 years of wandering, 80 years of silence. God, what are you doing with my life? Who in the world am I, God? 
Like, like, what have you made me to do? Do I have any purpose? There's 80 years of silence, but God was never silent. He was always working behind the scenes to set the stage for Act 2 to begin. It's the exact same thing with King David, right? Like, King David as a boy is going to slay the mighty giant with a slingshot and a couple rocks. Where in the world did he learn to do that? He was a shepherd for years, right? He's out in the fields, and he's just... All he's doing out there is he's playing with a slingshot, and he's got some rocks, and he's protecting his sheep from the wolves that are trying to attack him and stuff. Church, like God hadn't spoken to Israel for 400 years, but he never left. Like he was always there behind the scenes setting the stage for Act 2, getting it ready to begin. That's what it means that he is with you and that he's also for you. And someone needs to hear that because some of you are there right now. You're in this extended period of silence going, God, where in the world are you? What in the world are you doing? I'm dying to hear something from you today. I need to know if you're trustworthy. Don't ever confuse the silence of God with his absence. He may be silent, but he is never, ever, ever, ever still. I was reading this article a few weeks back. I was reading a lot of, uh, um, love reading a lot of missionary stories and some of my heroes in the faith. Um, John Hyde was a famous missionary in the mid-1800s, and he was talking about how he, he wore his body down over years of fasting and prayer and in order to see the people come to Christ in one of the hardest mission fields in the world, the Punjab people. And he would go back home and, and he would go just year after year after year. He would, he would petition his, his church and the, the mission board that was around there at that time. And he was just petitioning him saying, I need you to pray with me. And he would just labor for years, fasting and praying. And finally, somewhere around the sixth or seventh year, he comes back and he's saying, uh, guys, I need you to pray. I'm praying for one soul every single day for a year. And they go out and it's exactly what God gives six to seven years into this entire thing. God brings incredible revival to the people that he's working with over with the Punjab people. And then in the years to come, it's not just one person a day. It's four people a day. And God is just bringing that and just multiplying it year after year after year. David Bernier is kind of the same thing. 1700s, he's this guy that spent five years suffering through loneliness, depression, and pain. Like this guy was a missionary working out in the fields by himself, and for five years he suffered with loneliness, depression, and pain before he ever saw God completely break through with revival among the Native Americans that were living in the Northeast. I mean, we're talking about thousands and thousands of people that ended up coming to know the Lord, but after five years of suffering through loneliness, pain, and isolation, going, Lord, where in the world are you? William Carey's is the exact same story. Like 1761 to the early 1800s, he's going to be this famous missionary. He's going to go to, the, go to India. He's going to go on and he's going to spend 41 years uh, doing ministry in India. But he's going to be preaching the gospel for seven years before he ever sees one person come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine laboring away, giving your entire life, selling everything? God, I know beyond a shadow of doubt, you've called me to go to these people. I'm laboring for seven years, preaching the gospel faithfully before he ever sees one person come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's going to use him to bring massive, sweeping revival all throughout India. Tens of thousands of people are going to end up coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, every single one of them experienced extended seasons of silence. Church, I promise you, like, he might be silent right now, but he is never, ever, ever still. He's never still. Mary's life is about to get really, really complicated, right? I mean, she's still left as a pregnant, unwed teenage Virgin. I mean, just after this, she's going to have to ride 70 to 100 miles, ride, walk. It's going to be a very uncomfortable journey. 
Herod is going to try to kill her own child, and years later, she's going to go to the foot of the cross, and she's going to watch her own son suffer, bleed, and die, naked and alone while hanging upon a cross. But she's confident in the power of God, and she knows the promises of God at the exact same time that he is for her and that he is with her. And so she's able to keep holding on. I love the way that she ends this passage here as Gabriel's giving her all of these promises, and he's giving her all of these assurances of God's power and his ability to fulfill these different promises. I love how she ends this little conversation with Gabriel. And honestly, uh, her response is one that I hope that we could all hold on to when we're in the thick of it too. Here's what she says. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your will. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your will. I know that you're with me and I know that you're for me. So even in the middle of this silence, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your will.